This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Look around. Have we all gone mad? Or is it just those other people suffering from mass psychosis? Two psychologists weigh in, Professor Stephen Taylor, author of The Psychology of Pandemics, and psychoanalyst Judith Deutsch. From COVID to climate change, people report mental health declining around the world. Will that wreck our hopes for public health and the future climate? It is not famine, not earthquakes, not microbes, not cancer, but man himself who is man's greatest danger to man, for the simple reason that there is no adequate protection against psychic epidemics, which are infinitely more devastating than the worst of natural catastrophes. Anti-vaxxers, mask protests, conspiracy theories, our guest says we have seen it all before. But now they may be on steroids due to social media, mass media, and strange politics. As a clinical psychologist, Australian Stephen Taylor specializes in anxiety, OCD, PTSD, and related mental health problems. Stephen is currently working at Canada's University of British Columbia. While publishing books and papers, he took an interest in pandemics. When Taylor drew that together for a new book, his publisher rejected it. But the book, The Psychology of Pandemics, Preparing for the Next Global Outbreak of Infectious Disease, was released in October 2019, one month before COVID-19 was found in Wuhan, China. After his timely book, Taylor is writing a crest of demand for new understanding. How do we all react in a pandemic, and how can we heal? From Vancouver, Canada, Stephen Taylor, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thanks very much, Alex. Let's dive right in. Loud resistance movements against public health measures bubbled out of America. They happen in Canada, Australia, France, and more. Is there a kernel of rationality behind these protests? Well, there's a way of understanding them, and people being social creatures, uh, um, lockdown requires that people inhibit that natural tendency to socialize. So, yes, there is a kernel of, of of truth in this. Lockdown is bad for people's mental health, so I can understand why people are resistant to it. Lockdown is an unfortunate, necessary evil for uh, mitigating pandemics. One YouTube video claims society is experiencing a mass psychosis. Does the term mass psychosis have meaning for you in psychology? Not really, no. That's an exaggeration. Um, Sure, a lot of things are happening and many people are very frightened and, of course, there are conspiracy theories floating around. But this is not psychotic phenomena. You, you, You can't explain things like panic buying by referring to madness or psychopathology. There is a certain logic to all of these things that we're seeing. Okay, let's talk about your research into historic pandemics like the Russian flu of 1889 or the 1918-19 Spanish flu. What social expressions from previous pandemics rose again this time around, Stephen? Of course, um, if you compare COVID-19 to the so-called Spanish flu, um, the parallels are, are striking. There was the anti-mask movement in 1919, uh, expressed for the very same reasons that we're seeing today. So uh, people doubting the efficacy of masks or people not wanting to be told what to do, so is that. 
there was um, the growing pandemic fatigue in 1919. People were sick of lockdowns. They were sick of restrictions. They were tired of not being able to open their businesses. And so you had that growing protest in which communities responded, as they're doing today, by becoming increasingly heavy-handed. Police were threatening to arrest people who were violating social distancing back in 1919. And we're seeing the same today, where people are getting ticketed and fined for having parties or getting on buses without masks. So the parallels are, are striking. Have you found any syndromes or conditions that are unique to the COVID-19 pandemic? So far, no. There's nothing unique to COVID per se, but we are seeing a rise in, in clinical conditions you would not see in non-pandemic times. So, for example, we're seeing an increase in bereavement with people with chronic grief disorders, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder associated with getting infected, uh, long covid you know, that persistent symptoms. So they, these are things that seem to be relatively specific to a, a pandemic, but they're not specific to COVID. During the Spanish flu and during the Russian flu, there were long forms of the disorder. People had recovered from the acute phases of influenza, but then gone and developed things like chronic fatigue or persistent headaches or things like that. So the, the phenomena we're seeing today have been seen before. Yes, there are reports of lower IQ, PTSD, and even early-onset dementia, especially in people coming off ventilators. Have you encountered people with post-COVID problems already, and and what have you heard? I haven't encountered um, people specifically in my clinical practice, but there's there's been a huge variety, a huge range of, of responding. Some people do develop symptoms that resolve naturally over time, and I think that's based on the evidence so far, it looks like with most cases of long COVID, the symptoms do resolve in the weeks or months afterwards. So so that's good news that those symptoms will resolve, at least for some people. But it's really not known at this point how persistent the symptoms could become in some people. Well, I know old people remember a generation with many people crippled by polio, including President Franklin Roosevelt. He was wheelchair bound by it. Now we have long COVID. Stephen, have you heard of plans to cope with long COVID mental health needs? Well, this is part of the problem. All of our plans, mental health around COVID, have been uh, reactive rather than proactive. That is waiting for problems to arise rather than anticipating them. And I I think we could have done a, a way better job of dealing with the mental health aspects of COVID in preparing for things like long COVID. So, no, I'm, I'm not aware of any big plans underway at this point. It is, it is going to be a huge problem in the post-pandemic world. Long COVID, prolonged grief, post-traumatic stress disorder, the rise of germ phobia. Yeah, so um, a substantial minority of people will have clinical problems that, that will men, uh, merit uh, treatment. Well, if you have problems, you might go to your family doctor, but the best they can do in the eight minutes they have to see you is to prescribe pills or to send you for talk therapy. And there just aren't enough mental health professionals to cope with what we're seeing now. Are mental health professionals coming under the kinds of stresses that we see in other parts of the medical profession? Very much so. Um, mental health professionals were stretched thin. Our mental health system was broken before COVID. There weren't, weren't enough resources to, to deal with the mental health problems. And, and the, the situation has got even worse so, yes, it has been a very difficult time, not only for, for frontline healthcare workers, but also for mental health professionals. 
Yes, polls and studies show mental stress has risen significantly during the pandemic in all countries who measure it. According to a poll done by the American Psychiatric Association, more than four in 10 Americans say they are more anxious than last year, and it gets more serious than that. But like the virus, that anxiety tends to come in waves. It goes up and down, doesn't it? Exactly, yes. Um, so I, I would be skeptical about reading sensational news reports about the prevalence of mental illness in communities. A lot of those reports are just based on cross-sectional studies. What, what is more telling are the longitudinal studies, and as you alluded to, Alex, the rise and fall of anxiety, and, and that is what's happened during COVID. Uh, for example, as infections increase, people become more anxious. As infection rates in the community decrease and lockdown restrictions are eased, people's mental health improves. So I guess the good news is that people do bounce back. You might be feeling anxious or irritable or mildly depressed now, but when things are eased up, for most people, their mental health rebounds. Of course, that presumes that COVID-19 is going to go away, that we're eventually going to uh, conquer it. But some dark voices have suggested that it will become endemic, that we'll have to have shots regularly and uh, it will always be with us. In that case, that makes it more difficult. It does. It does. It makes it more challenging, particularly when you add in the stresses of climate change and, and things like that. But human beings are adaptive. And, you know, our problem as a species is we're just too adaptive. We've overrun the planet. If you look back, we coped with three centuries of recurrent plague, wave upon wave of bubonic plague. Human beings coped with that and, and bounced back, and here we are. We've um, endured countless pandemics and other outbreaks over the millennia and survived. So uh, I'm, I'm confident that even if, if COVID becomes pandemic, uh, endemic and we have to deal with it on a seasonal basis, that, that human beings will survive and flourish because that's what we've done in the past with way worse uh, diseases. And the mental health stress from the pandemic is not evenly distributed. Could you talk to us about who suffers more mentally? It's the same old story. The people who are poor, indigent, who have trouble um, um, making payments on rent, who have food insecurity, they're always the most vulnerable group during um, pandemics. Just to give you an example of that, in India, there are millions upon millions of internal migrant workers. And these are workers from the villages who travel hundreds of miles to the big cities to work at at menial labouring jobs. And during lockdown uh, in 2020, these people were, were out of work. Uh, when everything closed down, they were told to shelter in place. They said to themselves, we have no food, we have no income, we can't pay the rent. They all fled in a mass exodus back to the villages. Yeah. Tens of thousands crowding the bus depots. These are the people who, who needed help the most because, for, well, not only for their own economic plight, but the fact that they are spreading infection by fleeing. So, yes, um, the plague of our um, in- pandemics in- can infect everyone equally. Not everyone is equally touched by them. The rich have a, a way easier time of it than the poor. But apparently there are a few people who enjoy causing suffering and others instead. Talk to us about the role of the Internet trolls creating new phobias. Well, these have always been around. The WHO, interestingly, in early 2020, they, they warned about trolls and misinformation about the havoc that that could cause. Trolls are, are, are people who get their kicks out of creating mischief and mayhem. They're almost like a, a Joker-style Batman supervillain that they, they get a, a thrill out of causing mischief on a widespread uh, basis. They tend to be lacking empathy and psychopathic in nature, and they have this 
trait called negative social potency. And what that means is they get a real kick out of creating chaos and mayhem and, and distress for other people. Um, those people have always been around. Um, they're very difficult to deal with. I guess the best advice for them is uh, the, the old advice, do not feed the trolls. And that means don't respond to them. If, if you see some kind of malicious or sensational news story, be careful about forwarding it. Let me just give you an example about this. It's not a COVID example. Just to illustrate, trollery has been around forever when pandemics are concerned. If you go back to 2003, the SARS outbreak, a troll set up a fake website in Hong Kong, a news website, a spoof news website, and claimed that Hong Kong was going to be going into cordon sanitaire, that is, going into lockdown. And it was fake. But what that did is it caused widespread panic, panic buying, and people fleeing the city. So that's an example of trollery. So so really, the way in which they're dealt with is either shutting down the fake websites and and trying not to respond. Don't forward those sorts of messages if they seem sensational. Even blaming some enemy uh, for releasing bioweapons is not new. You talk about people believing that the Germans had released the Spanish flu on America through U-boats or something. Uh, yeah, yeah. And if you doubt it, you can go into the New York Times archives and find the New York Times article uh, on that. Uh, I've got it. It's, um, it was a, uh, a health authority there in New York City who was interviewed and said that he believed the rumor that Germans were arriving in U-boats in the dark of night and German agents were coming ashore with containers with the virus and spreading it through saloons and cinemas and stuff like that because there was no basis to it. But yes, there have always been conspiracy theories and there have always been rumors in which some outsider has brought in, in the infection. That, that's been a common narrative in previous outbreaks, that, that the infection is somehow brought by a foreigner or brought in, in, into the community that way. Some psychologists see a pattern in people who refuse to believe COVID-19 is real or think the pandemic is just a control mechanism for Bill Gates and George Soros. Is there anything we can do to soften public anger when the next pandemic or big flu season hits? My concern is we're not very good at learning the lessons of the past. Uh, We should have anticipated all of this back in early 2020. In, In fact, in early 2020, I was talking about the problem of vaccination hesitancy and and conspiracy theories. These things will happen in the next pandemic. Conspiratorial thinking uh, has always been around. So I I guess the best we can do is try and and learn the lessons. And one lesson we can learn from COVID-19 is conspiracy theorists are a minority. Sure, they're entitled to their views, but we don't have to give them the airplay that would broaden um, their audience. So there, there is something to be said for just leaving these people be, not stirring up the hornet's nest. If you're not going to be able to persuade someone to get vaccinated, sure, you can set up vaccine incentive programs like vaccine passports. But engaging in dialogue with hardcore anti-vaxxers can make the problem worse. It can cause them to dig in their heels to justify their position. So we need to be very careful about how we engage in those sorts of individuals. So that that isn't quite a fully formed lesson for the future, but it's the basis of one. We need to start thinking about the next pandemic and how are we going to anticipate and deal with these sorts of problems. Uh, Similarly, it's not just pandemics. We need to think about what are we going to do about climate-related disasters because you're going to see similar phenomena. For example, forced migration due to rising sea levels or desertification. 
that is where you've got masses of people migrating to other places. We're going to see similar sorts of phenomena, xenophobia, conspiracy theories, racism, conflicts. We need to start working on, on addressing those sorts of social problems and not just for pandemics. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is clinical psychologist Dr. Stephen Taylor. He's the author of the book, The Psychology of Pandemics. Stephen Taylor, how many papers have you published about the pandemic psychology since your book came out in 2019? Can you talk to us about a couple of things that you looked into? Yeah, um, we've been doing research since the very beginning of COVID-19, my, my colleagues and I. It's internet-based research, obviously, because everyone was in lockdown. Uh, but we're able to sample thousands and thousands of adults from Canada and the United States, and we assess them in multiple ways. So I guess we've published about 20 papers, research papers, on various aspects of the, um, the psychology of COVID-19. Uh, I guess one of the interesting things, at least for me, that's come out of this is pandemics evoke um, extreme reactions. You get extremes of people becoming highly, highly anxious at one end of the spectrum, and at the other end of the spectrum are the people who think the whole thing is a hoax or a joke. So pandemics tend to evoke those sorts of things, and we have found evidence of what we're calling a COVID stress syndrome, and that's a, an adjustment disorder. That is a, um, a form of high anxiety or excessive anxiety in response to a stressor. So people who have this COVID stress syndrome, they're anxious about the finances, the infection, they're xenophobic, they're having nightmares, they're compulsively checking the internet. But for many of those people, I expect that that level of distress should abate once the pandemic is over for most, but not all people. So, so we've been looking at that. We've also been looking at um, anti-vax and anti-mask attitudes and finding evidence of the role of psychological reactants in those phenomena. And psychological reactants is a personality trait where people who are raised in societies that teach them to value individuality tend to, to, to bristle and, and protest if they're being told what to do. It's almost an allergic reaction to being told what to do. So if you have a high level of psychological reactants and I tell you you should wear a mask, you're going to bristle at that, you're going to think of counter-arguments, and you're going to object. So we're finding that's playing a role in just about all of the anti-sorts of behaviours during COVID, anti-mask, anti-lockdown, uh, anti-vax, and so forth. As you told the Canadian Psychological Association, there is more research on pandemic psychology now than ever before. Is a new book or even a new field of study emerging? Yeah, <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm, I'm working on it right now, uh, uh, a, a new book. Um, there's there's so much information out there, so much new and useful information. And, of course, there's the historical record hasn't been fully mined either. There are a lot of important sources of information there that, to help us understanding the pandemic. So, yeah, I am working on a, uh, a new book on psychology of pandemics. Um, maybe be done in a year or so. Some experts say we need to manage stress levels in the population during all this, but... Lying or sugarcoating an ugly truth can lead to mass deaths. It's pretty serious. Can we reduce pandemic stress and still keep our eyes open? That's the balancing act, isn't it? Uh, it's a challenge that health authorities have grappled with, that we're all grappling. You're trying to get people to take the pandemic seriously, to shelter in place and do all those things without making them overly anxious. Uh, that's a real challenge. Um, for some people, just that message will make them highly anxious. Other people will dismiss it. Um, it's a balancing act. I, I guess 
what can be done is targeted messaging. So you target particular individuals, say a demographic group that might not be taking the pandemic seriously. You might be targeting them with a more serious fear-evoking message than you might target, say, people who are elderly and medically compromised already worried about their health. You would not want to terrify them even further. So that a message for them would be more calm, matter of fact, this is what you do to deal with COVID. So it's a challenging situation where there's no single message that reaches every group in society. You need to target things. Well, here's another tough challenge for many of my listeners. There is a fear that more psychological knowledge will be used by the few to control the many. In fact, some psychology has been used against us by advertisers and even politicians. Stephen Taylor, do you see ways to kind of popularize mental health techniques so they belong to everyone? I think that's a really good point. We need to start talking more about nudges. Um, nudges have been all over the media and nudges have been around for a long time and they are subtle ways of pushing people in the right direction or not. So, for example, the, the candies you see in the checkout lineup, that is a nudge. That is making it more convenient for you to buy candy. So advertisers have used this forever. During COVID, there's all, been all kinds of nudges to persuade people to do things like get vaccinated or wear masks. There is an ethical side to that, that you are manipulating people. So whatever nudges you're doing, you need to ask yourself, uh, is this ethically responsible? Because oftentimes you're implementing nudges without a person's knowledge or consent. You know, if, uh, if I set the candy bars up near the cash register uh, and suddenly uh, this increases the sale of those candy bars, I'm manipulating people to buy those candy bars without them knowing what is happening to them. So I think some knowledge about how we influence one another in the world, and we've been doing this for millennia, influencing one another. But some more knowledge about that and how that can be used for, um, for ethically um, sound and useful purposes needs to be done. But I, I agree with, with you, Alex. More generally, people need to, to know about psychological tools for managing stress levels. Now, these aren't some dark arts. These are often practical strategies that people can learn to help. And, and fortunately, during COVID, there have been a rise of online mental health resources that people can consult with to provide them with the tools for managing stress in their daily lives. Do you have an online website or a Twitter handle or anything like that? I have a website. It's um, drstephentaylor.com, but uh, that does not have a lot of treatment-related resources on it. We, we are working on a treatment platform right now, uh, but it's going to be some time in, in the making. But that's uh, in the works. Can we do better to build pandemic resilience into our culture? We can do a whole lot better. You know, one of the things that struck me as a real gem during COVID was the way in which COVID-19 dealt with in Chengdu in China, the capital of Sichuan province, which is actually relatively close to Wuhan. During lockdown, they set up this magnificent mental health program on a shoestring budget. It was uh, two dozen mental health practitioners, nurses, physicians, psychologists, and they set up um, TV programs, social media, informing people with tips about managing their mental health. They had um, a referral service so you could call in the phone lines where you got advice. And if that advice wasn't sufficient, then you were triaged to Zoom calls with a, a mental health practitioner. So that was set up. It raised the consciousness in society that these problems are around and here's what you do and here's some help. I think it was a wonderful, it was, it was up and running in March of 2020. We should have been doing something like that here because we need to. 
uh, a magnificent program. Stephen, I know you're super busy. Is there anything else you would like to say as we wrap this up? Yeah, I want to um, touch on one thing before we wrap up. We've been doing research on a phenomenon called post-traumatic growth. And it's, it's a concept that's been around for a long time. And research from previous disasters has shown that for many people, they go through a disaster like a flood or earthquake or hurricane, and they grow as human beings. They become stronger in some fashion. And we were looking at that in COVID. And so we, did, we published one study recently based on a couple of thousand Canadians and adults. And we asked them, we said, well, COVID has been bad. Many people have become very sick and died. But have there been any silver linings for you? And these are all people who are not infected with the coronavirus. And we found that three-quarters of them said, yeah, that they become more resilient, they have a, a greater appreciation for friends and family, a greater appreciation of trust in their communities, deepening spirituality, uh, and so forth. So uh, it isn't all bad news. Some people are coming out of this as, as stronger um, individuals. From Vancouver, Canada, we've been speaking with UBC professor and clinical psychologist Stephen Taylor. His book, The Psychology of Pandemics, is still a standard for understanding the psychology of this crisis. You can find links to Stephen and his work in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Radio Ecoshock. I began this radio exploration wondering, are we all mad? And poking about YouTube offered me this title, Mass Psychosis, How an Entire Population Becomes Mentally Ill. The video, with excellent illustrations, is part of a series from two Canadian brothers, they claim, who remain anonymous. They draw on 20th century writing, especially about World War II and the Holocaust, but they demonstrate competency in philosophy and history. The slant is libertarian and opposed to totalitarian governments. The implication is Western governments are already totalitarian and want to control you. Watch if you will, learn, question, but be careful. Almost all the comments are from COVID deniers, anti-vaxxers, and supporters of right-wing conspiracies. They complain they are victimized by Google, Facebook, et al., silencing disinformation. They think this video from the Academy of Ideas slips through that net. The idea of mass psychosis is appealing. We can say that those who will not get vaccines, wear masks, reduce carbon change, or change their lifestyles, they're deluded, they're crazy. Or others could say that about those who call for green movements. As this video shows, there is a long history of academics who describe how individuality could be destroyed by society. That countries have abused controls not just in racist ways, but for genocide dressed up as necessary wars. The Vietnam War drove the madness of militarism back into the spotlight for many in that generation, and that vein of mass madness has continued with wars in every decade. If mass psychosis can be pointed at anybody we disagree with, does the phrase really mean anything? As the YouTube video reaches out to psychology, particularly Carl Jung, I called on two psychologists to get their take. Instead of mass psychosis, I prefer something like waves of semi-contagious insanity. Much has been written about people with certain physical diseases connecting through the net and social media, 
but it's just as likely people with mental diseases will also feel empowered when they encounter others with delusions matching their own. The deluded become a money-making market for products and services targeting them. Criminals will recognize victims to scam. Politicians may tap the subgroup for votes, for agents, or for pressure against others. This alternative reality becomes an ecosystem that may grow, crash, or persist for years. Western society has therapies for individuals, but none for the social system itself. The foundation of Western power is built on wars, slavery, colonialism, and genocide, and they're not addressed. Like the Popish Declaration of Infallibility, society proclaims it can never be insane. So without any tools, these things fester, and they divide for centuries, and then they inhibit the awareness we need to protect the endangered nature and the planetary systems that support us all. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. How is it bearable for tender creatures such as ourselves to bear witness to the events of our world? Psychoanalyst Judith Deutsch is a hybrid, an American transplanted to Canada. She studied history and literature at UCLA and social work at UC Berkeley. Judy was trained in child psychoanalysis in the States and then adults at the Toronto Psychoanalytic Institute. While treating people in her private practice, Judy advocates for peace, human rights, and socialism. She is a widely published columnist and reviewer of books, who last appeared on Radio EcoShock in February 2019. Judy Deutsch, welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I guess I want to thank you for all the wonderful programs and interviews that you've done over time. I think I've listened to your program from the, from the beginning. So it's a wonder, wonderful source of information about climate change. I almost feel sorry for you if you've listened to all those shows. A lot of bad news, but some good news in there, too. Well, look, we could talk for hours about a 100 things, you and I, but today we're asking a, a simple question, I think. As climate disasters hit home during a global pandemic, are we witnessing a flowering of mass psychosis? And so we should start with the basics. In your view, what is mass psychosis? You know, it's a complicated uh, question because uh, psychosis is an individual problem, a pathology, descriptively having to do with the loss of the sense of reality. So in that way, the fact that there's not a facing of many realities with regard to climate, you know, you could call it um, a psychosis, but I don't think that it is. Um, that concept of a mass psychosis, too, was, was most, I guess, famously applied for the Hitler Third Reich um, about whether fascism was um, a manifestation of a, of a mass psychosis. But that, that concept is, is very much questioned. I guess my answer is that I don't think that what we're looking at with respect to the public 
popular reaction to climate or to COVID. It can be called a mass psychosis. Well, as the COVID-19 pandemic shows, uh, medical diseases can be contagious, but can mental disease be contagious? No, they can't um, in the same way as a disease can, but understanding group processes, you know, how people relate to each other um, is quite complicated and much more variable than, you know, just being able to say it's a mass psychosis. Um, I was thinking about this topic with regard to to climate change but, uh, and, the re, you know, reactions to it by various groups, NGOs, people in the government, scientists, um, people in various political movements, and there's many factors. And, you know, how do people react to huge threats? There was a, a, a book that I recently read that I, I was extremely um, impressed with. It was called Herodotus and the Anthropocene by Joel Schlosser. He's a political scientist, but he uses the word throughout the book. Uh, he calls it dynamic complexity. And, and I think that that is very applicable to understanding the climate system as well as um, you know, Freudian psychology is one of dynamic complexity, and the social, political world is one of dynamic complexity. That makes it especially hard to define or nail down because it is dynamic, it's changing, and, and it is complex. Did Freud talk about group madness at all? He talked about group psychology, but not group madness. He was looking at about the role of authority, particularly in, in very hierarchical institutions like the military or the church and um, people's reactions to authority. At times, you know, for people to, to group together, identifying with the authority or also um, reacting to, defensively to their own hostility to authority, you know, that can be a, a very useful and important question when you look at group processes. I know that in Canada and in other countries, hundreds of people gathered in angry crowds outside hospitals. They were apparently protesting against doctors and nurses inside, trying to save lives from COVID-19. That sounds to me a bit like madness. I'm sure the people that are protesting have their own logic, but where does the anger against medicine and science come from, do you think? It's hard to interpret individual beliefs and, and the causes for those beliefs from a group behavior where everybody seems to be behaving the same way, but they could be, from, you know, for many different reasons. It certainly seems mad in the sense that it's out of touch with, with knowledge and with reality, that it comes from various, various roots, you know, partly anxiety, you know, or even panic, but the you know the belief about what the, what you're panicking about can be very very distorted so amongst you know young people. There's probably I would imagine you know this very real anxiety that can get quite out of hand about their future, about uh, living conditions, and so on and so forth. Um, there's also beliefs about authority that are 
in the sense I call them sometimes pathogenic beliefs because there's kind of reaction that some people have about, you know, like you're not going to tell me what to do so that anything, anything that's mandatory or that's, um, that they, you know, that is, is a rule that there's a tendency to feel suspicious of or anxious about and so there's a lot of a lot of a lot of avenues for for distorted thinking. I think there's been a long-standing alternative school that says the masses are deluded, and those who object are the sane ones. The British psychiatrist R. D. Lang thought madness was a rational reaction to a world gone mad, and we have the French thinker Michel Foucault. What do you think about that? I mean, is it seems like society itself is like the Pope. It's infallible. A society cannot be insane. But then we look at nuclear weapons. We look at climate change. We look at a lot of things that say, well, maybe society can be the insane body. I, I don't think so. And I was, I've been thinking about this for quite a long time, certainly around climate, you know, because I've, I've been uh, paying attention to that really since uh, Hansen's original testimony. So that was in you know in the early early 1990s or even a little bit before that. But you know, and I've had a lot of experience with various environmental groups. And you know, one of my positions here in Toronto was with Science for Peace, and I was one of the main organizers of a meeting with James Hansen, Naomi Klein, and uh, Clayton Thomas Powell. This was at the beginning of when they you know, began to collaborate or anything. And I, I think that there's a lot of responsibility by people who are in positions of authority or power, you know, that, that it's very difficult you know, to have a basic reality understanding of, of what's going on. I'll give, you, I'll give you two examples, maybe. For instance, in Al Gore's movie, Inconvenient Truth, you know, he, he showed a lot of the climate processes that were known at that time. And at the very end, he gave very simple, simplistic solutions, you know, like to change your light bulbs. Or for, at that time, like um, David Suzuki, there were posters you know, in the Toronto subway system about caulking your windows. So there was such a discrepancy between the reality of what was known about danger and what was proffered as a solution. Those kinds of things are so confusing. There's so much of that so confusing to the public. So it's not that it's simply that people, you know, are blind to it, but, but possibly very confused. Um, Naomi Klein is, is another person that she, you know, after the Paris climate meeting and the, you know, the 2018 report, um, I heard in an interview, you know, she's saying in a very upbeat voice, you know, like that she thought that we could limit climate change to one, a rise of temperature to 1.5 degrees Celsius. That's just very ignorant. Or another example is um, even like Noam Chomsky, who only very lately has focused on climate change. And he says repeatedly that it's a threat to civilization as we know it. You know, that's that's so vague. And um, I think it's very confusing. It really conveys, you know, both all these things convey that, that there's no threat to human life, really. 
Well, no wonder we're confused. I mean, things are so very, very differently, changing so rapidly. And it looks like whether you're a leader at the top or a consumer of information at the bottom, it's just confusing. Nobody's really sure what's going on. This is brand new. So look, I want to bring out a fresh poll. I just saw an announcement today in The Lancet about this. It was in 10 countries, including the UK, US, but also uh, India, Nigeria, and the Philippines. And in it, Two-thirds of young people did not trust governments to act on climate change, and among thousands of young people surveyed, over half think humanity is doomed. So, Judy, how can we expect good mental health under those circumstances? In one way, I think that that's really quite heartening, you know, that youth are correctly appraising the danger and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to have, quote, mental health problems. From a Freudian point of view, you know, anxiety is, is not a disorder. It, it can be a very realistic appraisal of, of reality, and it can lead to, to very realistic kinds of responses. Which I think I think are there. You know, I think that there are many people, scholars and, and so on, who are doing excellent work in figuring out what really needs to be done. I think this is particularly true in in uh, it's been for a long time, for instance, in agriculture. You know, that there's very very good thinking. You know, and, and certainly in the sciences of climate change, there's much there's much more um, complex views or understanding of what some of the processes are, and why things have to have to change really immediately. That's been something that that's uh, has been quite a huge evasion for for you know three decades now. That you know with. Hansen's original testimony, you know, the conclusion that one would think would be that you have to, you know, regulate and mandate stopping emissions and eliminate them. And that seems to be uh, taboo, you know, amongst, amongst so many people to think about stopping anything and regulating. So the fact that these, you know, all these youth and, and so many countries are realizing true danger, I, you know, that that's, that's the kind of thing that can lead to, to some effective action. You know, since the, the 2015 and 2018 um, reports, there hasn't been one, um, as far as I know, one mandatory action regulation about actually stopping. You know, the timelines have been really ridiculous, I think. Probably Paul Beckwith has talked about it, but like, you know, it's very, it's all very deceptive. Like people saying, you know, well, we'll put a, a moratorium on the tar sands in 2030, or um, you know, the the idea of a carbon budget that takes no account of nonlinear um, feedbacks, positive feedbacks, is is also just that that is out of touch with reality. And the fact that that's been accepted by so many people in positions of authority, you know, that's, that I find is a very disturbing group process. Radio Ecoshock. You are tuned to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith. Joining us from Canada, psychoanalyst, activist, and columnist Judith Deutsch. 
We were talking about mental health as the pandemic and climate disasters pound millions of humans. I think in the background of some listeners' minds would be this. If we feel anxious and even depressed about the pandemic and growing climate disasters, should we worry we are mentally ill? No, I don't think so. I think think that's the difference between Freudian um, psychology and, say, like, the American psychology, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Diagnostic Manual. We can talk about about a capacity for anxiety and a capacity for depression, that if you're not feeling some of those things, you're not facing reality. And it doesn't mean that, that those emotional states will cause helplessness, like the function of anxiety is to evaluate, you know, whether it's realistic or not. Not to, not to just quickly say that, you know, that it's a disorder. Anxiety can be overwhelming and, and, and can paralyze, but it doesn't have to go in that direction. But again, if you're not feeling anxious, then you're not facing reality. That's a great poster. I'm going to put that on a sign and march down the street. So I worry, though, that there's a kind of feedback effect here, Judy. Uh, tools to suppress the contagion of COVID, you know, closing off key social ties, uh, making family get-togethers difficult, the meetings impossible, the arts, the sports. So isolated people can suffer mentally, and uh, it drives them into anger against authority, and then that fuels resistance to social action, which we need to stave off both the pandemic and climate change. So we get into this loop, and I wonder, could mass mental illness actually be the main factor preventing us from solving life-threatening challenges here on this planet? Well, yeah, I can certainly, you know, understand all the difficulties people are facing because of the social isolation and and the fears, you know, the very real fears about what these this horrible disease can can cause. But I don't think that that is the cause of social, you know, political inaction. In, in my various groups, I mean, and, and with the, the patients that I treat, you know that there's a whole range of reactions to this, and um, some, you know, there's some things that I think are very, you know, have been quite helpful in terms of a lot of intellectual activity. I would say, you know, there's a, you know, any number of um, study groups and, and Zoom meetings and so on and so forth. There's also been very interesting concepts that have come from it, which I think, you know, is something that I've noticed as a very detrimental aspect of the reaction to something like climate change, you know. There there have been many, many essential concepts that have just dropped out, like, you know, looking at externalities and life cycle analyses, um, looking at asking where the information is coming from. Uh, James Hansen, again, has, a, you know, it's a, it's a complex climate model in which he looks at paleoclimate record and, and modeling and, and very careful observation. There's concepts that I think are are really essential. It's interesting that, that the initial reaction to this information was to eliminate 
greenhouse gases, and then uh, over time that idea was just dropped out and it became adaptation and mitigation. And after a while, that that just dropped out. So you know the complex concepts have have you know have really disappeared, and I think that's that's hugely problematic with COVID. One of the things that came out that was really very helpful was to look at non uh, look at essential production and non-essential production, and that would be a phenomenal way of of also looking at what you know what we need to produce economically for people to survive versus what is non-essential. Well, again, unfortunately, you know that was a, I think a very a very realistic reaction to COVID. Now that that has dropped out, <laughs> so these crises, these threats, don't have an inevitable um, outcome. It's uh, I think uh, one thing to pay more attention to is why do these things drop out? What is the role of authority? Why aren't these shallow ideas challenged more? Wow, you've this is a huge concept you've just brought up that that actually complex thought has been damaged in some way, and I it could be due to uh, social media and mass media. I know looking way back to the sixties to Marshall McLuhan, he said that uh, we would extend ourselves with media, but every extension of the mind is actually in some other place an amputation of the mind that we give up some contact with actual reality in order to spend more time in this unreality. So perhaps that's what's happening to – it almost sounds like we're developing holes in our brains under the stress, really, the way you're talking here. There was a lot more complex thinking um, at times in our society. It's been politically and economically very advantageous to reduce to the, you know, pars pro toto, you know, part for the whole kind of thinking. The idea, you know, also about, you know, anti-intellectualism and anti-authority and, you know, some of it even came from, I think, you know, postmodernism and so on, you know, that there's no reality even, <laughs> you know, there's no facts, everything. You know, that's a, that's a huge reductionism and some of it, I've wondered if it's kind of comes from this idea of, of you know, a complete misapplication of physics, you know, like like Einstein's uh, discovery of, of relativity and Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. It's like that's been extended to all areas of knowledge, you know, which is terribly detrimental to understanding dynamic complexity. But you see that in many academic fields, I think. But it does sound rather sad. I know that I've read books like the, A History of European Intellectualism, and it's a massive project that's developed over centuries. And today, very few of those names would mean anything to people because they haven't heard it on Fox News or MSNBC. Exactly. That's right. So, all right. So we both agree big changes need to happen. And if they don't, possibly millions of people will die in pandemics or climate disasters. What do you think about developing terms like eco-anxiety or eco-grief? I, I don't like to use terms like that myself. You know, again, it's because of my quite individual focus in terms of psychology. What, what looks the same in terms of behavior, you know, has so many different meanings and different roots for people. 
and I, I worry that that closes off for people really thinking about trying to grasp a much more complex or a whole picture of, of what's going on. To bring that to ground, though, perhaps we could say if someone says, oh, I'm just feeling eco-anxiety, then they're, in a sense, that's a nice cover for other things that they may be very anxious about from their own personal lives. Is that the sort of direction you're going with this? That that is. You know, I would ask that, but I would also wonder about what exactly is making them anxious about the about the ecological situation. And I've heard this in, in groups that I've been in and so on, that it's as if, uh, you know, I felt eco-anxiety and that nothing can be done, so that there's not really an understanding, again, of, of what the situation is and what needs to be done. You know, people have the very individual reasons, and, and I respect that, you know, that some people are have so many real difficulties in their, you know, their day-to-day lives because of, of poverty and illness and, and stuff, you know, so that, of course, they're not going to be able to to deal with this. But there's a lot of other people who I think are in positions where they, they ought to be dealing with it much more realistically, certainly in academia and certainly the government and, and in uh, environmental groups. They need to be much more aware, much more realistic. Okay. Hi. There's a thousand more questions. I mean, I wonder, can a mad society heal itself? What do our listeners do to help their own mental balance and assist others? And there there just isn't time to answer those, and, and there really aren't good answers either, I don't think. So can we leave it there? Sure. Yeah, and thank you for your excellent questions. And always your broad focus on on climate and people and the political systems, too. From Toronto, Canada, we've been speaking with psychoanalyst and social critic Judith Deutsch, and you can find links to some of her articles and Judy's Twitter feed in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Judy, thank you, as always, for your help. Okay, thank you. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. If you have a story idea or thoughts on something you've heard, contact us, radio at ecoshock.org. That's radio at ecoshock.org. Climate fear is damaging mental health. The appearance of superstorms, fires, droughts, and all those signals of disturbance of the natural world, they're beginning to frighten people. No one is more worried about it than young people who will inherit this damaged world. A BBC poll found 45% of young people reported their feelings about climate change impacted their daily lives, almost half. As the BBC reports, quote, three-quarters of them said that they thought the future was frightening. Over half, 56%, say they think humanity is doomed, end quote. That poll, taken over 10 countries, will be published in the medical journal Lancet. Again, quoting BBC, the lead author, Carolyn Hickman, from Bath University, told BBC News, This shows eco-anxiety is not just for environmental destruction alone, but inextricably linked to government inaction on climate change, end quote from the BBC. Other polls, including one in Australia, reveal 10% of adults are choosing not to have children because they worry the future climate will be damaged. In under 35s, that rises to 20%. Sadly, it's also true that humans do need to have fewer children, 
to reduce to a population Earth can actually sustain. Mental health may be the barrier that prevents real climate action. The climate modelers, the politicians who signed the 2015 Paris Agreement, and the planners of record and the economists, they never consider how a massive breakdown in mental health might cripple efforts to save ourselves from climate disaster, much less a pandemic, a global pandemic. Greens join everyone else in trying to avoid developing mental distress in countries around the world. But if we don't talk about this and find some solutions, nothing else is going to get solved. Minds crippled by depression, panic, anger, anxiety, they will not find common bonds that we need for the big changes we all must face. The Conference of the Parties in Scotland this winter, like everything else, will discuss science, maybe technology, public policy, but not the increasingly damaged psyches in billions of people. That is the wild card which makes any outlandish policy possible. Society becomes an engine with no steering system, not even a driver. Madness becomes normalized. According to a report from the American Psychological Association, quote, Climate change is likewise having mental health impacts at the community level. Both acute and long-term changes have been shown to elevate hostility and interpersonal and intergroup aggression and contribute to the loss of social identity and cohesion, end quote. So, climate stress may lead to mental health problems which develop as divisions within society. Climate change creates conditions for denial and aggressive resistance to working together to stop climate change. Mental health can act as a feedback loop where climate change increases climate change through deterioration of individual mental health and social cohesion at the same time. That is all I'm saying. With all the other programs, plans, and money we need to address, things like the pandemic and climate change, we need to add a massive boost for mental health care. And it doesn't need to be just pills psychiatrists or psychologists. As our guest Stephen Taylor points out, in the first complete lockdown in China, local TV and media were used to help people trapped in their homes to encourage mental balance. We can reshape more entertainment and services to be supportive. We can stop funding death and start funding life. A wave of love and caring are still possible despite what any cynic will say, even during these times of crisis. I am Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Thank you for listening and caring.